Uh, good afternoon. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome as well to our viewers online. My name is Jacob Kurtzer. I'm the Acting Director of the Humanitarian Agenda here at CSIS. The Humanitarian Agenda is a project that CSIS that seeks to leverage the expertise of our scholars and programs to shine a light on the most pressing humanitarian issues in the world today and offer policy solutions. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to direct everyone's attention to our emergency exits as part of our safety and security plan and encourage you also to take this opportunity to turn your phones to mute. Um, I want to acknowledge before we begin the partnership that our program has with the U.S. Agency for International Development's Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, whose support allows us to put on events such as today's discussion. We have short time today, so I'll be brief. All of us here today are keenly aware of the immense human suffering taking place in Idlib and across Syria right now. Families and individuals have been forced into multiple displacements uh, with targeted attacks ongoing on innocent civilians and on hospitals and clinics, all of which challenges our notions of shared humanity. The events and escalations of violence this past weekend only increase the urgency of finding durable meaning solutions for the humanitarian challenges faced by the civilian population of Syria. I have to say that while we're very grateful to um, uh, our speaker today for joining us and for hosting and for having this event today, I find it deeply distressing and disappointing that after so many years we continue to be hosting events on the same topic, highlighting the same challenges, and we continue to find ourselves asking what we can do and what can be done. Um, so without any further ado, I'd like to now turn it over to one of our regular partners uh, in the humanitarian agenda, John Alterman. Dr. Alterman is the senior vice president, uh, holds the Zbigniew Brzezinski chair in global security and geostrategy, and is the director of the Middle East program here at CSIS, and he'll introduce our speaker today. Thank you, Dr. Alterman. Thank you very much, Jake, and, and thanks to the Humanitarian Agenda, thanks to USAID for the support of these kinds of programs. The horrors of Idlib are plain for those who wish to know them. Almost a million people, many of them children, are stranded along a border and trapped between armies. Idlib province has long been a desperate place, doubling its population since the war broke out as Syrians sought refuge from fighting. Now, Three million Syrians are huddled there, suffering from cold and lacking water, sanitation, and medical care. This has been occurring outside of the public glare, not because it's unknowable, but because the public is uninterested. Seized by coronavirus, a presidential campaign, a shaky economy, and rising populist sentiment in Europe, the United States, and elsewhere, the crisis in Idlib gets little attention. That's what brings us here, and we're here to speak to a forceful humanitarian whose organization has been doing tremendous work to try to relieve some of the suffering in Idlib. David Miliband is president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, where he oversees the agency's humanitarian relief operations in more than 40 war-affected countries and its refugee and resettlement assistance programs in over 20 U.S. cities. Under Miliband's leadership, the IRC has expanded its ability to rapidly respond to humanitarian crises and to meet the needs of an unprecedented number of people uprooted by conflict, war, and disaster. The organization is implementing an ambitious global strategy to bring clear outcomes, strong evidence, and systematic research to the humanitarian programs through collaborative partnerships with the public and private sectors. 
before he began this important work, he did other important work. From 2007 to 2010, he was the Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom. He graduated from Oxford in 1987 with a first-class honors degree in PPE, philosophy, politics, and economics, got a master's in political science in 1989 from MIT, which he, intended, which he attended as a Kennedy scholar. His accomplishments have earned him a reputation in former President Bill Clinton's words as one of the ablest, most creative public servants of our time and as an effective and passionate advocate for the world's uprooted and poor people, I'm pleased to introduce to you Mr. David Miliband. Thank you very much, uh, John. Thank you, Jake. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, uh, ambassadors, excellencies. Um, also, thank you to USAID, who are your partner, but also our uh, partner. Uh, the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance gives foreign aid a good name. It's a flexible, entrepreneurial, committed uh, partner of ours, and uh, it's a nice link that they're also partners of yours. I'm afraid that the timing of this event is very, very good for all of the wrong reasons. The situation today in northwest Syria is beyond desperate. As I know from our own staff on the ground, life, never mind livelihood, is daily in doubt. And as Jake referred to, the Turkey-Russia-Syria clashes should underline to all of us that the wider diplomatic vacuum, notable for the absence of coordinated European engagement, notable, I'm sorry to say, also for the absence of the United States, is a real and present danger, not just to humanitarian need, but also to wider regional stability. My purpose in making this speech today is in part to bring the humanitarian reality of Idlib to Washington to speak up for our staff and for the people who they serve in the hope that there's still room for humanity and principle in the corridors of power here. There are few countries with the capacity to shift the dynamic in Syria and the US is one of them. So I hope there is resonance in what I described today as well as brainstorming amongst all of us here in the conversation after my speech about what to do about it. But as well as bringing Idlib to Washington today, the situation in Idlib to Washington, I also want to make a wider argument. And this is that, the wider argument that I'm going to try to make. It's that the war in Syria is not just a disaster. It's an argument that the war in Syria will dangerously become a byword, a precedent for a new normal of brutal, divisive, contagious conflict. Impunity on the battlefield, stalling of diplomacy, the UN pulled from pillar to post, the aid system inadequate, neighboring states creaking under the strain of refugees, Western policy befuddled by a mixture of dysfunction, division, and denial. That is the reality of the Syrian story over the nine years that Jake referred to. And the danger is that it becomes copied elsewhere. Here's what I'm going to do today. First, summarize the current situation across Syria, starting in Idlib. Second, explain how we see Syria as a warning for the changing nature of conflict 
around the world today. Third, set out some short-term imperatives for how to save lives today. And fourth, draw some wider lessons for humanitarians and diplomats. I think we all know that the assault on Idlib is intended by the Syrian government to represent the grim climax of the nine-year-long civil war in Syria. 950,000 civilians have fled since December, with another 400,000 still at risk of joining them. The largest civilian displacement since the war started nine years ago. So yes, there have been conversations about Syria and debates about Syria over nine years, but this is the largest displacement reflecting some of the most virulent fighting. Every single day, another 11,000 civilians join the hundreds of thousands on the run. Among those forced to flee are about 20% of our local IRC staff who attempt to preserve their own work as well as their own families as they do so. Over 80% of those on the run are women and children. Many are out in the cold, braving freezing temperatures, about 20,000 with no shelter at all, freezing rain and snow, which has led to the deaths of about seven children in the last month, deaths from freezing itself. Attacks on health facilities represent some of the most egregious war crimes and are taking place despite specific calls from UN Security Council resolutions for them to be stopped. In the past three weeks alone, the IRC and other organizations we work with have had to suspend operations in a number of health facilities and relocate an entire fleet of ambulances because they were being attacked. In total, more than 80 health facilities in Idlib province have now been closed. It's also uh, the case that the situation has deteriorated so far that all of the US-based NGOs have come together in the Global Emergency Response Coalition, which is a humanitarian alliance, to launch only the second ever joint appeal in our history to raise funds for deployment inside Idlib. The fact that the exodus in Idlib is the greatest since the war began is testimony to the virulence and brutality of the fighting there. But I don't think it should obscure that there are risks in other parts of the country too. In the northeast of the country, 70,000 people are still displaced and the region is still recovering from the consequences of the Turkish offensive against the predominantly Kurdish Syrian Democratic Forces five months ago. Just last month, a US convoy exchanged fire with a pro-government militia while driving through a checkpoint. Meanwhile elsewhere, the Islamic State has been damaged but not vanquished. And while the group is not nearly as deadly as in the past, it remains a persistent threat, carrying out regular IED attacks and shootings in places like Raqqa and Deir Azor, east of the Euphrates, and temporarily capturing villages and bombing oil and gas facilities west of the river. In areas previously of opposition control, which have since been retaken by the Syrian military, we know from our own staff that the end of formal fighting has not led to an end to the violence or an improvement in the civilian population's humanitarian situation. Charles Lister at the Middle East Institute counts more than 350 attacks in the past 12 months in Deraa alone in the southwest of the country where the civil war began, including an attack last month that killed two Oxfam workers. The situation resembles a frozen conflict rather than an emergent peace. Meanwhile, outside Syria, the situation of nearly six million Syrians who fled across the border shouldn't be forgotten. 78% of Syrians in Jordan 
live below the poverty line. Half of the 500,000 Syrian refugee children in Lebanon are still out of school nine years into the war. And it's worth noting, and I'm sorry to say this as someone who is a foreigner in America, I live and work here and I have huge admiration and respect for the country, but the following is almost the most stunning statistic of all those I'm gonna give you. It relates to the continued shame for the US that this country has made it so difficult for Syrian families to find refuge here. Remember the statistics, three and a half million refugees in Turkey, 3.7 million maybe, 915,000 in Lebanon, 655,000 in Jordan, 567,000 in Germany. Just 563 Syrians were let into the United States last fiscal year. And only 320, not 320,000, 320 are on track to enter this fiscal year. That's what the reduction in the refugee resettlement program has meant for Syrians hoping to find safety here. Meanwhile, the Syrian government has made no secret of the fact that Syrians who have fled to neighboring countries as refugees are not welcome back. The government has levied a wide range of criminal charges against returning refugees, meaning that many of them risk imprisonment and torture if they try to return. They've also used the infamous Law 10 to appropriate and redevelop land that once belonged to displaced families, preventing refugees from having a place to come home to. Finally, the conduct of the war will make reconstruction and attempts to recreate some sense of normality all but impossible for decades to come. Just 9% of the Syrian population are currently served by functional wastewater treatment plants, and 46% and of health facilities are not fully functional, with more than one in three schools damaged or destroyed. So this is a decades-long trauma that is going to affect future generations as well as the current one. The broader point, though, I think is really important. The catastrophe in Idlib and the wider, and this is the third thing I want to talk about, how we should understand the situation in Syria today as symptomatic of a wider, what I call, age of impunity. The catastrophe in Idlib and the wider consequences of the conflict are symptoms of the utter failure of diplomacy and the abandonment by the international community of Syrian civilians. But it also foreshadows an even darker trend towards impunity, an era characterized by disregard for the rule of international law and an equally grave deficit of international diplomacy, which allows the suffering of civilians to continue unabated. The brutal siege tactics, the airstrikes on urban centers, the abduction of journalists and aid workers, the recruitment of child soldiers, the use of chemical weapons, public beheadings in town squares. These crimes are bad enough, but accountability has so far been all but non-existent. The majority of the blame lies with the allied Syrian, Russian, and Iranian forces. As the UN High Commission for Human Rights pointed out, of the roughly 300 civilian deaths in northwest Syria this year, 93% were caused by the Syrian government and its foreign allies. But in the process of so blatantly violating the laws of war, those countries have spurred a race to the bottom. It gives me no pleasure to point out that in the effort to take back Raqqa from Islamic State, the US-led operation destroyed or damaged more than 11,000 buildings in the city and has taken no responsibility for reconstruction.
This can only undermine calls for, quote unquote, restraint from Russian forces in Idlib. I believe and fear what we're seeing in, it, in Syria is not unique and that it foreshadows a dangerous trend where the laws of war, so carefully built up after the Second World War, become optional. And I think it's important to understand what the drivers are of this age of impunity. And I would put to you there are four. First, war is now increasingly urban, so the distinction between civilians and soldiers is eroded. This is a major reason why the war in Syria has displaced more than 11 million people. And here's an interesting thing. According to Stephen Feldstein at Carnegie, since 1945, an average of five people were displaced for every one person killed in conflict. In Syria, that five to one ratio is 25 to one. Second, the battlefield in Syria is increasingly crowded, filled by non-state actors like the constellation of free Syrian army groups, extremist groups like Islamic State and HTS, local partner forces like the US-backed Syrian Democratic Forces, and foreign militaries from Turkey and the US to Russia and Iran. The involvement of so many groups, more than 100 in Syria according to the Arms Conflict Location and Event Data Project, has fractured the battlefield geographically, but also hierarchically, given the often unclear chain of command within each of these groups. Furthermore, and here's the point, it's not just, well, I'll go on to the point. Third point for you, the large presence of foreign militaries has made the war far deadlier for civilians due to the increased firepower they bring to an otherwise quote-unquote civil war, as demonstrated by the widespread Russian airstrikes on cities like Iblib. The issue is not just the imbalance of foreign forces in Syria, it's the mere presence of them. In total, 70 countries now contribute troops to conflicts in other countries, according to the Peace Research Institute of Oslo. So the Syria phenomenon does not stand alone. It's increasingly common elsewhere. Just think about Somalia, Iraq, Mali, elsewhere. And the fourth driver of this age of impunity needs to be talked about. It's an obvious point dramatized in the title of this year's Munich Security Conference. The title was, quote unquote, Westlessness. It takes a German speaker to find a way of encapsulating the trauma of, or the dysfunction of Western policy, Westlessness. The absence of the West in the Syria endgame is not only a military question outside the northwest of the country. Syria is low, very low, on the Western diplomatic priority list, and foreign policy is very low on the political priority list. In fact, fear of entanglement largely outweighs commitments to halt the suffering. And the roots of this absence are obviously the failures in Iraq and Afghanistan, the lingering effects of the financial crisis. But when liberal democratic countries committed to human rights are absent, then those who regard those rights as an inconvenience are obviously given free reign, and that is what we are seeing. Because although Syria is the poster child for the age of impunity, if you look at civilian deaths, if you look at killing of aid workers, if you look at a range of 
indicators of children caught up in conflict. Syria is not an outlier, it's part of a trend. And so that leads to the concluding or um, to the, the, to the prescriptive parts of my remarks. Uh, I want to first of all talk about short-term relief in Idlib, and then I want to come on to the wider lessons. The immediate need in Syria is a ceasefire, obviously, and increased unimpeded humanitarian access to civilians in need. But there is no chance of this happening, and little point in people calling for it, without a strategic decision in Washington and European capitals that Syria matters enough to require all the costs that come with engagement of any kind. Since I'm running a humanitarian NGO, I have to steer away from the military side of these questions, other than saying that all military decisions should be taken with a view to their humanitarian consequences. But even short of the military questions, once a decision is taken that engagement is right, there are ways to increase the costs on those who are perpetrating crimes on the battlefield. For example, instead of UN member states and UN officials expecting each other to address the crisis, both need to step up. I've suggested Secretary General Guterres spearhead shuttle diplomacy between Idlib, Damascus, Ankara, Moscow, and New York at the Security Council. The Security Council itself, in my view, should be meeting at ministerial level. The presidency of the Security Council should convene, for example, a ministerial session at which the UN Human Rights Council's Commission of Inquiry briefs members and really requires them to account for the human rights abuses and war crimes that are taking place in Syria. There needs to be engagement by Western powers with the seriousness of the situation. A meeting was planned, it seems to be off now, between Pres Chancellor Merkel and Presidents Erdogan, Putin and Macron in the next few days. It now seems that that is to be a bilateral President Putin, President Erdogan meeting. A wider meeting makes sense with those two European leaders, but where is the US in that story? Also, the widening of aid corridors and flows, the renewal of cross-border aid, the reopening of the Yarabia crossing in the east are essential. Two crossing points for aid were closed in January, and without action, another two will be closed in July. Make no mistake, the humanitarian situation could deteriorate much further. Further, we need accountability for crimes committed following up on each of the media reports that contain such chilling footage. It's surprising to see that there are no EU sanctions on Russia for their actions in Syria. Accountability needs to start with the report of the Board of Inquiry, the UN Board of Inquiry, into attacks on civilian infrastructure in Syria due to report next week. The inquiry is a litmus test for meaningful accountability, and we should all judge the report accordingly. The, the inquiry, in my view, should name perpetrators, and its findings must be made public. Finally, the multilateral framework for political talks that has been elbowed aside by the countries of the Astana process that's Russia, Turkey, Iran, and Syria itself, is essential. The Astana participants have proven unwilling or unable to improve civilian protection, to reduce attacks on aid workers, or improve the humanitarian situation in the country. The fact that there is something called a UN process shouldn't fool anyone into thinking that it currently exercises real leverage over the actions of the parties. There won't be a solution until that changes. 
Now, in addition to these short-term measures, which are my day-to-day -day concern, I also think it's incumbent on me as the leader of a humanitarian organization to discuss a far more thoroughgoing set of issues that are raised by the conflict in Syria, as well as the dangers it portends for the global system. I want to say that it's important to have some humility in this task. Hindsight is 2020, and there's never been a clear or obvious path to resolving the war and preventing civilian suffering. But some things are obvious in retrospect and were actually pointed out by many people at the time. For example, quote unquote, Assad must go is not a strategy. Neither is, quote unquote, keep the oil. Red lines are not red unless they're enforced. Counterterrorism is a band-aid, not a solution. Other things, though, other lessons are more complicated and therefore more difficult. And for the benefit of the discussion, I want to highlight four lessons that I think are serious because Syria doesn't represent an outlier, it represents a trend. The first is the lesson that international humanitarian law will become optional unless it receives a surge of support. I want to quote Foreign Minister Lavrov on, of Russia on this because at the UN General Assembly last year, he rightly said, quote, international, uh, beg your pardon, attacks on international law are looming large. Many will see some irony in this, given the situation in Syria. He called out what he sees as an American philosophy of, quote, I do as I please. I do as I please is precisely the problem, but to state the obvious, it's not confined to the US. I want to remind you that international humanitarian law was developed on the basis of the lessons of history after the Second World War with a view especially of the interwar period. These laws do not judge the military mission, but they demand that it be pursued with necessity, proportionality, and distinction. When appropriately applied, the laws of war limit harms to civilians in conflict zones and offer soldiers a roadmap to pursuing their mission with honor and valor intact. But now, international humanitarian law is under siege. I want to suggest that its defense needs a three-pronged effort from civil society, from us, in the absence of government leadership. First, we need to strengthen the ability of people on the ground to safely record and document abuses. Technology companies have a vital role to play in this. Second, on the basis of that documentation, we need to use the laws that exist to push back against the perpetrators. That doesn't just mean the International Criminal Court, to which Syria is not a signatory. It also means examples like the German NGO, the European Center for Con Constitutional and Human Rights, which has filed a criminal suit against Syrian generals on the principle of universal jurisdiction. And third, countries who support international humanitarian law should use the economic tools at their disposal, such as the Magnitsky Act, and the newly passed in the US Caesar Act to target those who are responsible for violations. The second lesson of Syria is that we need the independent, principled, and loud voice of the United Nations more than ever. Reporting on breaches of the UN Charter, exposing abuses of human rights, working furiously to overcome the obstacles that are put in the way of the fulfillment of basic UN principles. 
The work of UN staffers on the ground around the world is, as I've seen for myself, committed and brave. But the gridlock at the Security Council and the need to gain support of national governments in countries where the UN works threatens the freedom of the UN, its agencies, and its officials to speak out. This needs to be of widespread concern. The ability to speak truth to power is one of the UN's great strengths. When then High Commissioner for Human Rights, Zaid Rad al-Hussein, condemned what happened in Myanmar in 2017 as, quote, a textbook example of ethnic cleansing, his words rightly reverberated around the world. Yet the powers to whom truth needs to be spoken are precisely the people whose funds pay the bills, nominate officials, and control agendas. It's said that the UN is only as strong and principled as its member states, especially the powerful permanent members of the Security Council. But the UN Charter gives independent backing to the work of officials. And on issues like climate change, the independent work of UN bodies has been vital in building the body of evidence necessary to urge the world to act. I would argue that in matters of peace and security, we cannot afford the power of the UN to bear witness to what is happening on the ground to be compromised. The third lesson concerns the danger that military power renders diplomacy irrelevant. In Syria, Russia and Iran have shown how hard power still matters. However many times diplomats say there is no military solution, it remains the case that military power can subjugate populations and win wars even where it cannot win the peace. The situation where a government is willing to kill its own people challenges diplomacy as well as law. And here, I think for an American audience, it's really important to draw the contrast between Northeast Syria and Northwest Syria. It's, stri it's striking and instructive. In the former, in the Northeast, there is a tenuous balance of power sustained by American military decisions and some scope for power sharing. In the latter, in the Northwest, as we're seeing, there is no similar balance, no constraint on the use of Syrian, Russian, and Iranian power, and no prospect of power sharing, as Turkey pr has proven both unable to deter Syrian aggression and unwilling to emphasize civilian protection in its military efforts. I think all of us have far more serious thinking to do as, about what is meant by a quote-unquote political solution. Because the truth of the last nine years is that it's been far clearer what people want to see a transition from, not what they want to see a transition to. We have to think much harder about what conditions are possible to bring about a political solution and the consequences for diplomacy when those conditions are not present. While the presence of troops is insufficient on its own to resolve the underlying challenges of power sharing and governance, their absence can make political reconciliation impossible. And representing an agency that works in all of the world's conflict zones, we see that more and more. The fourth and final lesson of Syria is that the regime of refugee support has never been more needed and never been more inadequate. This certainly needs another lecture, but here are three obvious points. First, Countries like Lebanon, Turkey, and Jordan have been sheltering millions of refugees, yet the main burden has been borne by their host populations. And that is not sustainable. Hosting refugees is a global public good. It needs to be supported by the international system. And while the World Bank has made some good steps in this direction, we need to go far further.
Second, refugees have for a long time been assumed to be in greater need than those who are internally displaced. One lesson of Syria is that this assumption does not always hold true. The IDPs, the internally displaced, shepherded into Idlib, are more at risk than their relatives who made it out of the country. And third, the loss of the US as, as a champion of refugee resettlement and refugee rights is echoing loudly around the world. Though US resettlement numbers will never match those in refugee hosting states like Lebanon or Jordan, the symbolic value of a robust refugee resettlement program is, is high. And its absence has made it significantly harder for refugee hosting governments to step back, to, st to step up to their legal obligations. The West can make no claim to help Syrian refugees when they refuse to take them in and then expect host governments to pick up the tab. The absence of this effective re regime leads to the situation that is in the news headlines today. Turkey, using refugees, has desperate leverage against Europe, and Europe not really knowing how to react. The boomerang effect of neglecting refugee support for the nine years of the war now comes home to roost. Europe needs to be more than on the alert. It needs to be galvanized into action before it's too late to prevent another refugee crisis in Europe. Let me just finish on the following note. There's no doubt that about the scale of the Syria fatigue that is felt outside the country. You referred, John, to the difficulty of getting attention for this crisis. My point would be, what right do we have to be fatigued compared to the people who are inside Syria? Those million people displaced from Idlib over the last three months have in many cases been displaced two, three, or four times before. The population of the province has been doubled by the influx of those displaced from elsewhere in Syria. But if we know anything, it's this. What starts in Syria does not end in Syria. That should worry us all. And that is why this issue belongs at the top of the agenda of policymakers as well as humanitarians. Syria's trauma represents many of the sins of commission, but also sins of omission. This is what we must seek to put right, lest this new decade becomes one of impunity. Thank you very much indeed. David, thank you very much for that very powerful talk that gave us a lot to, to think about. I, I was struck by that phrase that you used, the, the age of impunity. And there are arguments that some make that we need to recognize that the Assad regime has won, that it is conquering the last remaining corners of the country, and we have to deal from that reality, especially because there's no diplomacy that's going to change that reality. How, as a humanitarian who in many ways has had to work with repressive governments all the time, how should we think about the rehabilitation of the Assad regime, the Assad government, and what messages that sends about impunity for actions going forward? Is that a reward to Assad? Well, look. 
I think the first thing to say is that if you're a hum representing a humanitarian organization or if you're a humanitarian aid worker, you don't take sides. Uh, you're on the side of the people in need, and it's really important to our ability to work to do that. As it happens, we worked in Syria before 2011. We were there from 2008 to 2010. Uh, the reasons we were asked to leave have never been made uh, clear. And we hold very firmly to the principle that we do not judge the merits of the sides that we are working on. However, secondly, we do have to speak to reality. And the reality at the moment is that about six and a half, seven million of Syria's remaining 16 million population are living in areas outside government control. Right? They're living in the northeast of the country, three and a half million. They're living in Idlib, uh, three million or so. Now, here's the thing about the bombardment that's happening at the moment, the military action that's taking place in Idlib at the moment. No one can show that it is advancing the military goal that has been set. Russia has set the military goal. President Assad has signed up to it, which is to uh, remove those in governance of that territory. Those are uh, Harayat, Tariya al-Sham, which is a group uh, affiliated in various ways to al-Qaeda, and various others. Now, the bombing that's happening at the moment is killing civilians. It's not removing terrorist groups or other non-state uh, actors. And we have to speak to that reality. We are bearing witness to that reality every day. Thirdly, and finally, you referred to um, the rehabilitation of the Assad regime. I would argue that any government has it in its own hands to rehabilitate itself through its actions. It's not the judge, it's not the role of outsiders to do that. By their actions shall you know them. And, where the, and the point about accountability for war crimes is that it doesn't lapse. It's absolutely essential that if the message is not, does not go out that crimes will be held, people will be held accountable for their crimes, then you are encouraging more of them. And that's why I think it's very important that civil society plays the kind of role that I very briefly alluded to uh, in my talk. It's not about denying the reality that exists on the ground. It's not about taking sides in a dispute. It's about recognizing that if the law is, up, is not upheld, then the law becomes an ass, and that is dangerous for everyone. How would you make the case to an American public that is fatigued by almost 20 years of war in the Middle East that they actually should care about those issues, that we should care about international humanitarian law, that it affects things here in addition to things there? I think that um, there are two parts to that. One is, I don't think we should duck the moral argument. I think it's really important in speaking to a, any audience uh, not to be so afraid of seeming big-hearted that you run away from the moral argument. I am happy to make the argument to any American audience that the freezing to death of children under trees in Idlib is a moral outrage that they should be concerned about as human beings and as human beings who, who are citizens of a powerful country. The fact that those children are freezing to death because they've been bombarded from their homes by their own government, I think it, it doubles the uh, case. And I, I don't think one should run away from that. However, anyone who tries to only sit on the moral high ground is doomed to failure. And so I would also say that it's essential, and I think this is something that humanitarians aren't always good at, is that we should make the strategic geopolitical interest-based argument as well as the moral, if you like, humanitarian argument. And the geopolitical 
uh, argument is that American interests are engaged. They're engaged in the following ways. One, America has interests across the Middle East, and what's happening in Syria will not end. In Syria, will destabilize uh, those, part, those allies of America in the uh, Middle East. Second, the Russian entry into the Middle East, or re-entry into the uh, Middle East, is a very significant uh, geopolitical change. And if America wants to be playing a role in the Middle East, it's, it's going to have to show how it's going to be done. Thirdly, I would argue that America's role in the global system and American interests in the global system aren't just uh, those that are demonstrated by giving, they're demonstrated by taking as well. And America has, has been able to benefit from the rule of international law around uh, the world, and it loses when those laws are undermined. For fourth and final point, which I, I hope doesn't sound self-interested coming from a European, and I'm happy to be a Brit who still refers to himself as a European. Uh, the, uh, I still believe that um, America has a strong interest in its democratic allies in Europe being sustained in their strength and in their stability. And there is no question that already with the dangers that posed from migration flows from Libya, which is a something very much on European policymakers' minds, they also have to be concerned about a further unplanned, unregulated, disorganized uh, flow of people from the Middle East as well. And so for that reason, I would say there's an American interest in that. And in a world where 113 countries have suffered reductions in democratic freedom over the last 13 years, it's even more important that Europe and America stand together. And so I would say that that would be the fourth part of my argument. Now, you'll have to tell me whether that will win any followers in, uh, across the US, but that's the best I can do. Um, let me ask you a British question, not a European question. It's notable that, that Britain doesn't really have, is not at the forefront of diplomacy on this issue. As, as a Briton, do you feel that's a mistake for British interests? Is there a way that, that, that Britain might demonstrate uh, the, the, the role of upholding a, a moral structure that the United States is, is not playing well, right I would now? Well, I would hope so. I mean, it, it grieves me that I can make a speech about how there's a key meeting being an on-again, off-again meeting, a, a Macron, Merkel, Putin, Erdogan meeting, and no one, I've heard no clamor over the last week since the meeting was announced of people saying, no, 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 there's no chance that meeting will succeed unless you invite Boris Johnson as well. I mean, there is just a real absence uh, there. And it's, stri it's striking to me uh, that a country which is still a member of the Security Council, um, whose diplomats make strong statements at the Security Council, um, has not got political leadership that wants to engage in this kind of geopolitical question. I don't want to overclaim for what the UK can do, uh, but I am deeply concerned uh, that the era of Brexit will be an era of uh, British isolation. And that's, I think, not good for Britain. And modestly, I would suggest it's not good for the wider world either. Let me ask one more question before I go to the audience. Um, the US and its allies have been pretty adamant that there will not be assistance to Syria until there's a political settlement that brings in the opposition and others. Is that sustainable? Is that a mistake? Does there come a point 
where the world should relax uh, that for the good of the, of the people who you rightly described have been suffering and will be suffering? Well, I think that um, I, I hold a very strong view that if you're a civilian in a government-controlled area of Syria, um, you have rights to aid if they're not being met by your own government in the same way that if you're a civilian in a rebel-held area of Syria, you have that right. Now, remember, the, when people say the UN is delivering aid inside government-held areas of Syria, which it is, that's being paid for by American and European taxpayers. So you're right that reconstruction aid is, is being withheld, but humanitarian aid is not being withheld. And I would argue strongly against humanitarian aid uh, being withheld. And one of the, but one of the levers that does exist is that, um, I mean, the, uh, is put by European policymakers more strongly because there's been more of a debate there, is that that's a card that can't just be given away. It would be very unwise to give that away. So I don't think that's trading away, I don't quite remember how you put it, but the lives of uh, Syrians. Uh, if you're living in a government-controlled area and your government is not meeting your needs and you're getting UN aid, you should be saying thank you to the US or to uh, European countries who are the main funders of those UN uh, programs. I think the, the reconstruction of the country is a broader uh, political construct where you'd expect the allies of that country to be engaged, not just those who have uh, raised profound questions about its actions. Um, we have a, a time for a few questions right there. Right. Jacob, Tom, Hold on, well, let's wait for the microphone if you would. McKinley's right behind you. Thank you, McKinley. Never been hindered by not having a microphone. Thank you. Uh, David, thank you for an exemplary talk and one that hits, I think, beautifully all the high points. But I'm aware at this time of another train wreck in, in the offing, and that's the strike of coronavirus on populations like refugees and in Africa and other places where there is no health system or where the health system is very, very deeply undermined. And this morning I heard experts re repeat the view, perhaps, that between 40 and 70 percent of the world's population in one way or another will experience this. So it isn't something that the refugees are likely to escape. Um, and this is clearly something that involves people all around the refugee areas. Has there been any thinking about this and any way to prepare for it? And secondly, is there any long shot here where the devastation of percent, perhaps 10% mortality in this kind of a situation uh, could lead uh, to some kind of ceasefire? We've seen this in other humanitarian tragedies in the past, short term sometimes, sometimes long term, sometimes leading to peace conversations. Uh, it's just an idea at this point, but no tragedy, I think, in one way or another should be allowed to happen without thinking through the full range, and would love to hear your comments. Mm -hmm. Well, look, um, Tom, Ambassador Prickering, if you really want to know um, the way out of the Syria mess, you should listen to him. He should probably have been giving the lecture, not me, given your extraordinary service and experience and ideas. Uh, just on coronavirus, I'd say two things. First of all, 
by some stroke of luck, the places where we do most of our work across Africa and the Middle East, um, to some extent in South Asia as well, mercifully have been, relatively speaking, spared so far in this. So it's worth being aware uh, of that. Secondly, things could easily go very, 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 very bad indeed very quickly. Because if you think about the spread, the rate of spread in societies where there are advanced health systems, where there is advanced public health information, where there are extensive, where it's easy to access hygiene measures, just think of the speed of spread amongst populations where those, don't, those things don't exist, where there isn't the public health infrastructure, where the idea of, um, uh, it's gone out of my mind, um, when you put something, quarantine, quarantine where, where, the, where the idea of quarantine is absurd in any kind of mass um, movement of people, whether IDPs or uh, refugees. And here it's worth going back to that statistic. One in every 105 people on the planet has been displaced by war and conflict at the moment. 30 million refugees and asylum seekers, 40 million internally displaced. And uh, maybe 60% of them are in urban areas. So you're see of the refugees, sorry. So you're absolutely right to draw attention to it. We're certainly scrambling to figure out the impact on our own staff, the impact on our own programs, which in, their, in turn, if you think about our health programs, to the extent that our health programs would be weakened by our staff getting it, that then raises the danger of um, an outbreak amongst our uh, clients. And so uh, if you want to get more depressed, you just have to think about the spread of coronavirus in, uh, amongst the kind of populations that we, that we help. And that is certainly a, a, a real clear and present danger, if not in this uh, episode, then perhaps in the second half of the year. And Iran certainly, compared to many countries in the Middle East, has a fairly robust public health service. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's, that's it's a very Iran, point. which has been devastated, is not among the most decrepit. It's what, how, well, yeah, that's right. Well, remind me of the number of cases in Iran. Uh, I think 3,000. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I saw your hand over here. The microphone is coming. Yep, right there. Thank you. Good to see you again. Thank you for your comments. I'd like to go back to your point Can on you technology. Yourself, Francis Cook. Um, I'd like to go back to your point on technology. You have the reputation of being very creative with the use of technology. Um, and I'm just wondering if you've been out to Silicon Valley to challenge them to do more than invent more creative ways to deliver our groceries. Have they come up with um, good ways to deliver assistance, for example? I'm very impressed by the amount of video footage we've gotten out of Syria yeah. as compared to, say, Libya 10 years ago. So that's been very helpful. But have they developed anything to help you in your work of delivering relief? So yes and no is the answer to that. Even better than going to Silicon Valley, I've been to Davos, which is where you can meet more uh, people from Silicon Valley in a shorter period of uh, time, even than uh, flying to Palo Alto. Um, but I've, we've also done uh, work with partners in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. The, the shining example of what we have been able to do is an information platform for refugees called Signpost. In uh, Europe, it was called Refugee.info. It was developed with software engineers from some of the leading companies, and a million refugees used it on arrival in uh, Greece. Uh, we've now expanded Signpost to um, El Salvador, where it's called Qu uh, Quentinos, and it's actually taken on a 24-7 um, human, uh, an ability for to ask questions. So you can say, I'm on the run from a gang in El Salvador. I need to know where I can find a safe house. This is where I am, and we're able to answer. So that's pretty impressive. We'd like to expand that uh, to um, 
Mexico and actually to the US as well. So if there's anyone from the tech sector here who, or any philanthropists here, we'd be happy to hear from them. Um, on the um, side of safe reporting, I remain very, very concerned. And I think those who are um, caught in the midst of the fighting are obviously in grave danger, but um, they're also in grave danger from what's on their iPhone if they get stopped at a checkpoint or elsewhere. And so there remains a lot of work to do to make it safe to upload information in a secure way. Uh, yes, ma'am, right there. Sasha Kistenchand, I wanted to focus on one of your last points from your presentation, which is reconstruction aid being withheld, but humanitarian aid is not. Uh, the reason I'm asking this question is I worked in Gaziantep, um, so the Turkish border with Syria, in 2017 uh, with an implementing partner for the State Department. And our program, which is called Building the legit or was called <laughs> building the legitimacy of local councils was supporting the opposition councils to make sure that at the time in 2017 our presumption was Assad would be gone there'd be a power vacuum lessons learned from Iraq etc would be don't leave a lack of governance for ISIS and other entities to fill. So we wanted to make sure that the local councils had the ability to deliver services once Assad was gone. Now that hasn't happened. And so I'm concerned because I've been out of the picture for over a year now. Do you think that it's worth, that there should be a push to continue reconstruction aid along the lines of supporting local councils? Because it sounds like right now, if that's being withheld, we are allowing there to be a vacuum in certain areas. Yeah, I, I can't speak to the details of the program that you were involved in. I certainly know that in the north, Northeast, um, there have been more efforts to develop the kind of systems that you're speaking to. Certainly our experience in delivering humanitarian aid is that where civil society is organized, uh, it's, uh, and uh, is partnering with international um, players, it's actually a very healthy model. Um, I can't speak to the to the details of what you're talking about. I certainly think that in the northeast of the country, um, the, the need to help organize um, uh, in civilian terms as well as um, military terms is, is evident. And uh, it would stand to reason that it would make sense in the northwest, but I can't speak to the details of the program. We have time for one more question right here in the front. Thank you. Um, my name is Adam Sahloul. I'm a Syrian-American. Uh, you talked earlier about making the case for engagement in Syria. Um, Syrian-Americans have been making that case <clears throat> for the last nine years, both morally and from a geopolitical standpoint. And hearing your remarks and looking around this room, I know we've not been alone at screaming at the wall for the last nine years. But um, uh, I noted uh, you were following the democratic debates, including last week when there was mention of Idlib on the debate stage. And you can imagine the difficulty of trying to you know, get in the, the points, the moral or the geostrategic points about engagement in Syria within a limited amount of time. Um, my question is, you know, perhaps there are parallels between you know, um, the trends within the lab Labor Party and in the Democratic Party here in the US um, in sort of the growing space and permissibility, um, or excuse me, uh, the growing space for disinformation within the left-wing movements, um, and particularly how 
uh, progressive actors in the space who want to find the words and the, and the nomenclature for engagement in places like Syria, but making sure that some of the irresponsible voices uh, who have some of the loudest platforms uh, aren't getting more airtime. Thank you. Hmm. Well, look, I, I think you're raising a very profound question. I've learned in America when people say that's a great question, it basically means they don't know the answer. So that is a great question. Uh, the, uh, um, look, I, don't, I think disinformation isn't confined to one side of the political spectrum, to state the obvious. I did think it was good that the debate last week at least asked a question because the previous debates had not. Although, frankly, the fact that two 30-second answers were allowed, one spent half the time talking about healthcare and the other one um, was about what not to do, was not an encouraging portent. And we were then told that we didn't have any more time to discuss Syria because we had to discuss the mottos of each candidate. That wasn't a great advertisement for democratic, um, a small d democratic debate, not, not, not large d. Um, I think that there's no question that the failings and failure in Iraq has clouded a lot of the debate. If you like, you could say that the Syrian people are paying the price of the failure in uh, Iraq in various uh, ways. Uh, I, still th I do think, though, that the contrast, if I'd had 30 seconds, I would have talked about the contrast between the Northeast and the Northwest, because I think that is... A, a teachable moment, and I think it's instructive. It doesn't say that you then throw American troops into the North uh, West, but it shows you uh, that American presence or absence uh, makes a difference, and it mitigates against the temptation for broad brush answers that try to make this a, a, a very uh, binary um, divide. Equally, I think, I suppose there's another, there are two other things I should have said in answer to John's earlier question. One is that um, we've got a lesson to learn in the humanitarian movement that the real voices that are persuasive are not mine. The voices that are persuasive are those who are on the receiving end. And the more that beneficiaries can be the spokespeople, the stronger uh, the case that is made, the more able uh, one is to appeal to people's sense of humanity and uh, interest. The, other th the second thing, though, is that uh, there's a danger it ends up sounding like you're asking for the whole of the US government to throw everything into Syria. And my reflection on six years working in humanitarian aid is, it, is how much difference you can make for a small amount of effort. Actually, it's n you're not asking for um, the whole government to be turned over to a policy problem. We're, we're actually able to make more difference, and maybe that's an argument that needs to be made. The outsized contribution that American words and deeds can have uh, on this. I think your, your reflection, though, on nine years of banging your head against the wall is, is sobering. And that's why I think we've got to find different ways, different spokespeople, different arguments uh, to make the case. Because I do think that um, America suffers when um, uh, a war like that in Syria takes the turn that it, the turn that it has. Um, that's a, a sobering set of observations. I think you've given us some tools to think through the future, this idea of the age of impunity is an idea that we should be turning over as we think about how we get into the next phase, not only of this conflict, but of resolving the conflict and dealing with the extraordinarily real and pressing humanitarian needs that you accurately, accurately describe. Please join me in thanking David Miliband. Thank you. Thanks very much.